You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Cloris Leachman stars in The Last Oogie Love Show. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to take a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and oh, a milkshake. Ooh, my favorite. Oh, and I am Adam Thomas. And you know what? We you, we always do the scripted little funny thing where we combine the two titles. Uh, this is the first time that it's been 100% accurate, because that is absolutely the last Oogieville show. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? There's going to be so much other Oogie Loves content. It's only been like a decade. <laughs> that's a long yeah. way. The Avatar sequels we've been waiting for about that amount of time. Yeah, that's true. They might be working on it. Maybe they're filming three of them back to back. Interesting, given recent box office news and the box office yeah. records of that movie. But we'll talk about that later. Hey, Disney beat Disney. That, Go ahead. Mazel tov. Tonight, Adam, we're here, despite us kind of goofing around, and uh, we're here for a somber reason. We're here because uh, yeah. our... Topic of this week is in honor of uh, the late, great Cloris Leachman, who we did lose about, like, over a month ago, late in January, in her 90s. Um, so she had a very long life, very long career. But we love celebrating character actors. We don't have as many opportunities to do that with a character actress like Cloris Leachman definitely was. And uh, she was one of the greats. And it's a bummer, even as old as she was, it's still a bummer to hear her past. The moment I saw, like, the Variety article... I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, I agree, man. I was the same way. Like, I, it, you know, once I read that, I was like, oh, no. Because I've, I've loved Cloris Leachman for as long as I can remember. I mean, she's one of the funniest bits in my favorite mashup movie of all time in Young Frankenstein is Fowerbruka. I mean, even as a kid, the, the horses and everything. I mean, it made me laugh so hard. Yeah, I've always, always had a soft spot for Cloris Leachman. I think she was one of the consummate professionals and also would do kind of whatever the fuck she was asked to do and always gave a sense of like gusto to it. Even in their worst performances, she always tried. She, she never just showed up. Yeah. I would argue it's less that she had worse performances and more. She put too much work into things that didn't deserve her work necessarily. Yeah. I, I, She's one of those constant professionals where it's like, when has she technically been bad? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Right. Right. And she's been in horrible things, but she's been always been, at least given it her all. Right, and she always had sort of like a devotion, especially in comedy, which she was very famous for, um, despite we're talking about at least uh, her big dramatic performance of this particular episode. Even in comedy, she took the actual emotions of the character seriously, which made the jokes really work so well. It's something Mel Brooks, who she frequently collaborated with, really complimented her on several times whenever he talked about her. And I think that really works with like a Frau Blucher in particular, like stuff like when she talks about, yes, he was my boyfriend, that's a silly line. But she gives it the actual emotional impact where it's like, oh no, she really loved that character who we don't even see. You really see it like there's a history yes. to that joke. Yep, and yeah, I, I agree. She was always all in on it. There's nothing she does in that movie to me that is a miss. She's actually pitch perfect comedic supporting actress. 
Yeah, especially in a movie that also has Terry Garr and Madeline Kahn also doing equally phenomenal oh, performances. Absolutely. And I mean, and I wouldn't put any of them above the other. I think they're all great, but that's also what makes the movie great. It's a phenomenal ensemble, yes. Yeah, so it was something Mel Brooks always knew how to, like, put someone to good use in terms of their talent. Even when, like, admittingly, he didn't always write the most nuanced female characters, but he always, like, knew how to spot great female talent and really utilize them. Uh-huh. But even then with her, like, I think I remember the first things I saw and were probably, like, she was in a couple Muppet things. She was in the Muppet movie. She has the great cameo near the end where they try and get into Orson Welles' office and she doesn't allow them in and then she gets, like, the allergic reaction to their hair. And then she uh-huh. was also a, a guest on The Muppet Show in a really fun episode where, like, the premise is pigs are, like, taking over the show and they're, like, holding Kermit and Bozzy and everyone else hostage and she's in the middle of it, not really being aware. And then even when I was very young, um, with a more sort of, like, um, not necessarily adult show, but at least one that had more, like, scary themes. She was the mom in the It's a Good Life episode, The Twilight Zone, with the kid with powers. Oh, my God, she was. Right, she was working a yeah, while, even older in TV. Like, she was on the old Lassie show. She's been working so long. Yeah, forever. I mean, literally forever. Yes. Um, and uh, we're talking about two very interesting uh, <laughs> particular oh. movies. In her career, where if you uh, if you're new to the show, um, Adam doesn't normally make these noises, but you'll see why. Uh, because at the end of our last episode, uh, as we do with any episode, we pick two movies at random. One of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies, and uh, we pick a number between one and ten to get the good and bad feature for the following episode. So last time we ended up getting uh, Adam's good pick, which was the Last Picture Show, the celebrated multi Academy Award winning and nominated feature, and also uh, my bad pick, which was Oogie Loves and the Big Balloon Adventure, which is a movie most of you are oh. not aware of at all. <laughs> oh, and there's all oh, there's a good reason for it. There's a few good reasons. We'll uh, we'll get into yeah. that, but let's start at least with the good movie, and let's start with the Last Picture Show. And melt your cold, cold heart. Tony Bennett's cold, cold heart was on everybody's hit parade. Elizabeth Taylor was getting married. Boys wore ducktails. The police action in the Far East was Korea. And Anarene, Texas, like other small towns, is approaching the end of an era. But Mama, it's a sin, isn't it? Unless you're married, you know I wouldn't do that. <sighs> Don't be so mealy mouth. I'll stay with her all night one of these nights, too. She done promised. You won't either. Yes, I will. Why shouldn't I? I'm not sorry for you. You'd have left Billy, too, just like you left me. I bet you left him plenty of nights whenever J.C. whistled. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Anarene, Texas, 1951. Nothing much has changed. So, uh, The Last Picture Show came out October 22nd, 1971. It'll be turning 50 years old this year, um, and was uh, directed and written by Peter Bogdanovich, and this is his uh, second feature after uh, Targets, which he was part of, like, the Roger Corman school, and Targets was part of that uh, sort of, like, production machine, and uh, he ended up getting uh, this, which is based on uh, Larry McMurtry's novel, uh, which he co-wrote the script with Bogdanovich, though also a lot of credit to uh, Polly Platt, who was created as, like, a costume designer on the movie, but was very instrumental in terms of actually getting a lot of the interesting ideas to come out with, like, the screenplay, because she was married to Peter Bogdanovich at the time. They worked a lot on the screenplay, and also she was very much a producer who managed to get this movie done and in black and white and all this other stuff. She's a very undersung hero 
in terms of film, I would recommend definitely the, uh, not to recommend another podcast, but uh, You Must Remember This, which is a great like history of film podcast, did a whole miniseries about Polly Platt. And she's a very undersung voice in film, and especially even in Peter Bogdanovich's career, because uh, despite, you know, working on Targets and this, and then the two other movies after this, what uh, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon, uh, despite working on both of those even after the infamous production of this movie, where um, Sybil Shepard is one of the stars, and Peter Bogdanovich sort of had a infamous love affair that would really affect his career after that, and ended up breaking the relationship off with Polly Platt. Um, rather dramatically, um, despite all that turmoil that's happening during this production, uh, they made a phenomenal classic movie that uh, maybe some people aren't aware of, but I think uh, you know deserves all of the accolades it got. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you. The thing is, I have heard the title of this movie probably my whole life, and I honestly thought that I had seen it before going into this, just because it is one of those movies that's always mentioned on like the greatest American films of all time. And, you know, plus being a fan of Cloris Leachman and Jeff Bridges and all these other amazing ensemble cast that shows up in this movie. Um, and I, I was wrong. I had never seen it until today actually for the show. And uh, I mean, I, I gotta be honest, like the first 30 minutes or so, I'm like, Oh, okay. All right. But by the end, I was like, I mean, I was completely 100% hooked. Uh, yeah, this is this is a great, great under. I don't know that it's, it's not underappreciated, but underseen, I would say, to be more accurate. Yeah, because you mentioned the AFI thing. This was this is on the AFI top 100 list, which we've talked about on the show previously. And it was always uh-huh. one when I was younger and I was trying to get through all the movies on that list. I saw the last picture show and I really didn't have much of any idea about it, even up until I watched it about two years ago. I was like, I don't know, this. I am not sure really what to expect out of this. And uh, what you end up getting is a very sobering drama that's very relatable and very human. And um, kind of, despite being, taking place in the 50s, uh, has a lot of economic anxiety stuff that uh, really lingers in, especially like American culture over the last, you know, several decades. It's, uh, it's still very relevant, despite its sort of time and place. It's a very sort of depressing movie. There's not one character in this movie that succeeds or, you know, triumphs or anything. It's just, it's really sort of dark. Yeah, because if you're not aware, basically the plot is it's an ensemble drama that's about uh, various people who live in the small town in Texas that is dying. Like, if you look at the downtown, there's not a lot of places there. And even then, the buildings, many of them are abandoned because the the various different businesses have closed down and the ones that are still running are barely running at all. Um, and uh, there's several different characters. It's generational divide between uh, the younger kids, which include like Sonny uh, played by Timothy Bottoms and the Jeff Bridges character you mentioned and Sybil Shepard, like these younger folks and also the, uh, their parents' generation, which includes like uh, Alan Burstyn and Cloris Leachman and some of these others who are, equally lost but in very different ways one is a generation that's kind of trying to go into the future with no sort of like plank to help them out and the other generation is on that plankless plateau sort of just aimlessly walking around and like seeing these young people and hoping they can have the potential to make something better of themselves but uh, realizing that maybe they didn't give that generation much of a chance to do so i mean if at all right i mean honestly if at all you know ellen bernstein her i mean she completely is living vicariously through her daughter and just giving her the worst advice 
ever consoling her in ways that is really sort of disturbing and you know ultimately what Sybil Shepherd goes through and it just sort of seen her mom uh, not necessarily celebrate it but like like well that's just what happens they can't all be winners and you're like oh this is horrible yeah it's it's pretty uh pretty fucked up but at the same time I I, I love the way that it paints that picture in in ways that feel like it's not necessarily depression porn as much as just like you're really living in the lives of these characters and it's it's so interesting especially considering that like with Bogdanovich he was like a New York intellectual type he was like a film critic before he ever became a director and I think it's the sort of combination of this novel and its depiction I mean, I haven't read the novel but sort of the it's a claim was sort of in depicting this very realistic grounded element and then with like I mentioned uh, Polly Platt her sort of history of living in sort of a derelict town with, you know, less than comfortable living situations. Like I said, I really recommend the Polly Platt. You must remember this miniseries. It goes into a lot of that. It really feels authentic, especially like any of the sort of like singular scenes that show off just the real authentic embarrassment these characters go through. Like with Sybil Shepherd, the, the pool scene is like one of the most unsettling, yeah. disturbing scenes. It oh. also feels like it 100% happened to somebody. The pool scene and her pool hall scene. Yes, it's like, oh, no, I, I agree with you. I never looked at this movie thinking it was depression. Porn. The thing is, it all feels really grounded in realism. Like all of these characters, you're like, yeah, these people exist. There's not one character in this that feels super far fetched or anything like it's all like, oh, yeah, these people exist. This makes sense to me. These people in this dying town, you know, the ultimate dream of all of them is to escape it. And then the harsh reality of that. Well, maybe none of them can. And the few that do, like, the, I would argue the only person that has any kind of quote-unquote happy ending is just Sylva Shepard goes off to college. Like, that's her, that she's the one that ends up the happiest. Yeah, like, even Jeff Bridges can leave, but he goes to Korea. Like, he's literally just like, well, yeah. I'll come back if I am not shot within two years. Yeah, that's his last word. I'll see you in a year or two if I don't get shot. You're like, oh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's a bleak movie, but it's kind of refreshing, too, that material is not played for just sympathy acts if you're just following these real people through this year or so that the movie takes place it's really kind of fascinating as far as a character study on film as well even the small bits like you know the our woman or the alcohol sleepman she's not in it that often uh but she's fucking phenomenal in it you know sam the lion he won the fucking oscar for it he's i think he has like nine minutes of screen time Right, along along with Leachman, both of them one supporting actor and actress. Yeah, awards, and they're yes. barely in it. The, let's put it this way. Take any of these sort of side characters out of it, and then the movie wouldn't be that good. Every character has a reason for being in this movie, and it works so perfectly. Yeah, particularly those two winning uh, performances are so interesting, oh. because they're both from people like Cloris Leachman, as we said, very hardworking character actors, and Ben Johnson was like a dude who was fifth lead in like old john wayne westerns and shit like that he was a stuntman yeah he's a he's a western stuntman actor yeah that's what he was right but you can see like the mileage on them you really feel like they've lived through all this and sam the lion is interesting because he's sort of like the one lingering light of the town because he owns all these businesses and keeps them alive and he's sort of like the town patriarch who's like very much trying to help everyone out in his own way. And especially the that fucking scene where he's uh, with Timothy Bottoms and um, the Billy character on the on the water and they're fishing. And it's just oh, a very straight dude. pushing on him as he's talking about the story. And then he immediately goes back out. It's a phenomenal scene. It's fantastic. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the movie in hindsight 
you know, Sonny and Dwayne are about to go to Mexico for the weekend. And he's like, so you guys are just going to go, huh? Yep. Well, here's some money. You better, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there's that lingering shot of him sort of looking at them and, and then looking back at him, you know, okay, then see you later. And then ultimately what happens, it's such a downer. It's almost like, oh, I think he knew this was the last time he was going to see these kids. When you kind of have these moments you look back on when you're, when you realize like that was the last time you saw a person. Um, and you didn't even think about it for a second, and you'll always think of that moment in clear crystal detail. Yeah, almost like he knew. Right. It's almost like Sam knew, and it's almost in a weird way like they kind of knew too, just the way they were looking back at him. Like, this is it. This is the last sort of hurrah of this town as it is. And it's so weird even when, like, they come back and it feels almost like a Twilight Zone episode where they're just like, wait, what's happening? Everything's closed. What's going on? Oh, didn't you hear Sam died over there in them heels? That one dude sitting in his fucking car. That old drunk dude who was passed out and gets up, hey, left him a thousand dollars. He should have left me a thousand dollars. I could have done more of that shit than he could. Like, he's just bitter old man. Like, it's just, it's really sort of like a punch to the stomach. You don't realize, even while watching it, how, well, I mean, you do realize how important the Sam character is. But that's sort of the beauty of the fact that after he passes away, how he was the heart and soul of this town, and he was connected to every character in some way. After he just leaves, like, whatever is still alive in the town just dies. Oh, slowly. Yeah, it dies a slow death. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the elderly woman can't keep the movie theater running. He's, he has to start working in the oil fields just to keep the pool hall going. The diner is not open. It barely open anymore. I mean, it, it's and then ultimately what happens to um, I can't remember his name. Uh, Billy, played interestingly by Sam Bottoms, the brother of Timothy Bottoms. Yep. What happens to Billy? And I mean, what a heartbreaking scene that is too. And it's done so well too. You know, you sons of bitches. He was sweeping. You're like, oh. And once again, that entire older generation of people who are credited behind, just like, these kids these days, they don't know. Just like, wow, fuck yeah. you guys. You got a lot of crazy kids in this town. Like, fuck you, man. You just hit this kid. And the sheriff's out there. I saw it. He didn't do anything. He was dumb. You're like, oh, fucking hell. But then there's scenes in this movie that when she's at the pool party and she finds uh, Sam or whatever, the guy in the kitchen that she thought she was going to marry, and he just grabs her by the crotch. And it's so shocking. His line where he's just like, oh, are you a virgin? Oh, yes, I am. Oh, that's too bad. Come with me when you're not. Oh, damn. And that ultimately becomes her goal is to lose her virginity by anybody so she can marry him. And it's fucking just crazy. Not not in a way that it's like, woohoo, a wacky. But you're like, this is the like real. This is the shit people go through and the importance they put on these trivial things. And, you know, just to escape sort of whatever self-made prison they feel they're in. And it's just, it's disturbing, it's heartbreaking, but it's so relatable too. Yeah, and especially with like poor Sybil Shepherd, with like how determined she is to have that happen. And then she has a scene with Jeff Bridges that is so incredibly awkward at the motel. That's so bad. It's so bad. And even, and then later on, obviously the pool hall thing you're talking about is deeply upsetting. And uh, yeah, Clue Gulliger in one of his few non-horror film roles, but playing much more of a monster than he ever played in a horror film. Playing off of like Sybil Shepherd, who this is very early in her career, and she's like 20. It's her first movie. Right, she's able to do so much. She has such a nuanced, powerful performance. And she plays off everyone so perfectly, whether it be like Jeff Bridges or Clue Gallagher or someone we haven't mentioned, fucking Randy Quaid, baby-faced Randy Quaid. <laughs> such a sleazeball in it. Yeah, so unlike Randy Quaid in real life, I'm sure he didn't pull anything from his real life. Yeah. No. Nope. No? Never did anything. Nope. 
well-adjusted human being that Rena Quaid is. Right, there's not one point where she she talked about, like, so you know about them assassins in Hollywood that are trying to track me down. It's like, God damn it, I knew it! <laughs> oh, man. Like I said, half hour in, I'm like, I don't, this is kind of slow moving, and it is a slower moving movie. And, you know, it's a little bit over two hours long, but it, it, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I, I really, really couldn't. And even the part where they brought back Billy and, and Sam sort of confronts them all. You know, he didn't have the decency to clean his face off. I'm like, oh, yeah, fuck you, kids. Like, it's such a good scene. This movie this movie is just populated by so many just great character acting scenes. It, it's, like I said, it's, it's sort of a tour de force when it comes to character acting. Right, and it's something that, like, I could see how if you get the novel, this was apparently a big trouble they had with adapting the novel, it feels like a novel in terms of, like, different episodic things that happen. Mm -hmm. And it could just kind of feel like, oh, we're kind of meandering around. But each thing really builds up each of those individual characters, like, so perfectly. It still has this, like, larger narrative flow despite having so many different subplots it's juggling. Like, we haven't even talked much about Leechman and her subplot, which is deeply upsetting as well, in which Timothy Bottoms, who is, keep in mind, this, like, high school senior about to graduate, um, is tasked by his coach for the football team to be like, hey, why don't you go pick up my wife and, like, take her to the clinic? And Leachman is the wife, and the moment he even gets there, she's like, here, I'm, I'm supposed to take you back to the, you know, the clinic? Oh, he didn't tell me that you were doing that, not him. Like, immediately, so depressingly sad. The thing is, too, which I, I do think really works well is obviously you know the exercise subplot with why her and the coach were exchanged because he was sleeping with the boys right you know and, and and they do show it enough like even the scene where he slaps the one boy in the butt yes and they showed him full screen he looks back at him and even her like oh you have no idea what's going on when she says it to him i got it even without knowing that was an exercise subplot i read that after i read the notes but i got it it's kind of right there they don't need to really show it and i'm sort of glad they didn't no yeah especially because a lot of that subplot does kind of feel like it's from the sunny crawford character's perspective it's sort of him mm -hmm. being thrust in the middle of the situation he's really not that aware of and not necessarily being totally manipulated by chloris leachman there's a bit of that but there's also at the same time a readiness to be like oh hey this is gonna be fun i'm gonna have like an affair with this older woman yeah it's also his end because his whole drive in the beginning is to get laid yes like, and that's why he breaks up with his girlfriend that he's had for over for a year on their year long anniversary because she won't sleep with him. And he instantly goes to the diner and he's eyeballing um, uh, Eileen Brennan, the, the one who wants the diner. Yeah. Yeah. Genevieve. He's honestly he's instantly eyeballing her and she's kind of into it. Like she even says, I'm sorry, we never made it. You know, that type of thing. Like his whole goal was just the excitement of getting laid. And he didn't realize what that same relationship was with the Cloris Leachman character on the flip side. It was an escape thing for her, absolutely, but she kind of fell hard. Right, and he totally treats her like an object as opposed to, like, just like an opportunity oh, sure. as opposed to, like, an actual person. And it's, it, like, so upsetting when she, like, has this really uncomfortable scene where she's like, oh, why don't you come in? I'm sorry I brought you in. How about a root beer? Oh, I'm sorry. She just so is, like, discombobulated. And how their affair proceeds from there, and eventually how he just kind of forgets about her when Civil Shepherd comes a knocking. 
And I found that scene even more uncomfortable uh, when he goes back. Like, I was wondering if I'd have a cup of coffee with you. And she has this cathartic, like, fuck you. You know, why am I apologizing? I've been apologizing you for three months and you haven't even been here. None of it's enough anymore. You know what you did. But and he holds her hand and she's like, oh, it's OK. It's OK. And I'm like, oh, no. And that ends the movie. It's so perfect. It like encapsulates everything about the movie. I know. And it was like. Oh, don't. Oh, but they, in a weird way, they need each other. So it's almost like their loneliness and depression is, is going to keep them together, which obviously is never a good sort of linchpin to have in a relationship. What are you talking about? This movie is full of like happy relationships where everyone's great and nobody has any problems. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. 10 out of 10 relationships. It, it's just, it's really sad. It's super sad. But you see why she won her Oscar for that particular scene alone. Oh, God, fuck yeah, dude. It's not just her throwing the coffee around, because that could easily be, that's just the Oscar clip moment. But so much subtlety goes into this character, where especially, she obviously did dramatic work, but this is like her big dramatic performance, and most people kind of even forgot about it after she was in the Mel Brooks movies after this. But you see that same commitment she brought to a comedic role, even here with a very straight character. That's like so heart wrenching and so upsetting, and how she's able to just put all of her energy into that. You feel once again like this is a character who naturally exists, and it's so upsetting to see her in this position. And it's also really interesting just because we're talking about this movie that takes place in the fifties that was came out in nineteen seventy one. It's so weird that not too long after this, the fifties nostalgia craze really kicks in with like American Graffiti and Happy Days, where they really gloss over just like oh it was all like jukeboxes and rock around the clock, <laughs> Fonzie. <laughs> Bolt shops, hey! <laughs> Sit on it. <laughs> yeah, just that how it, like that was not too far off from this, and then this movie like starts off the decade with like, no, this was a really upsetting time that a lot yeah, of people stopped. didn't have a great time. This is that post-war period where everyone's just kind of out of work and nothing's really working for anybody. Yeah, everybody was kind of fucked at this point. It was, it wasn't necessarily a depression, but small communities were fucking ravaged at this time. It's all really crystallized with the Sonny character. I would argue is the closest to a main character we have in terms of, like, he kind of no, weaves throughout. Yeah, every, which is also weird given, do you know who, like, he's sort of the one major character who doesn't have, like, the hugest career after this. But do, do you know where I know him from? I do not know where you know him from, no. I know him as, in the early 2000s, uh, well into his career as a character actor, he ended up becoming a go-to briefly for different versions of George W. Bush. Like on the South Park creator, oh Trey Parker, Matt Stone God. show, That's My Bush. He played Bush. That's and in him. the Crocodile Hunter show, movie and shit like that. Holy shit. I'd never even realized, no. Wow. <laughs> right? That's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, last thing I saw him in was that shitty movie that came out last year, I think. The Shed. The Shudder, like, vampire movie. He's in that. Right, he's still working. He's still getting the smaller, shittier hey, he's movies. Still yeah, he's still going. <laughs> He's not like, you know, Bridges or any of these guys, but yeah, he's he's still been consummate working. Yes, but he is such a great person to anchor this whole movie on, and it was a big reason why he ended up getting cast by Bogdanovich. His sad eyes. Oh, like, he seems to be the only character he can read social cues, but he has no idea how to behave socially. Right. Like, he knows he shouldn't be messing around with Sybil Shepard when he ultimately does. He knows. But he does it anyways because he always had a crush on her. And then ultimately what happens to him, it's sort of the, the destruction that really takes place because of that sort of 
I don't want to call it, it was not an affair, but of that relationship is just insane. And it's like, he knew the entire time, even when she's saying, you know, Oh, we should get married. Let's just run off the whole time. He's like, Oh, your parents are going to kill me. This is not going to work. This is not going to work. And then ultimately they get married. And what's the first thing he's trying to do? He's trying to get in her pants. He, he works on impulse the whole time, the character. Yeah. And he's, he's, unable to see the consequences of another action before they're too late. Now, I definitely feel like he feels bad for all the actions he takes after he does them. He's unable to have any sort of foresight. But the way that he, especially during the, the last 20 minutes or so, where he is just realizing like, oh, I'm going to be stuck here. I'm just going to be stuck oh, in yeah. the same place forever. And everything, like whatever I love is going to go away. Tries to leave and turns the fuck around. It's a great everyman character. The most exciting thing that happens to this kid is, you know, he gets in a fight with Jeff Bridges and he gets his eye fucked up. Other than that, not a lot of really, like, crazy excitement happens to this character. He's just this normal sort of, you know, living below his, living below means, sort of chiseling his way out of life every day that he can to sort of get by sort of guy. And it's like, that's the most relatable character in the world. Right, and, you, and I think it's such a strong and smart idea to sort of make him be the linchpin of this movie. Right, and it allows him to be sort of like a big back and forth between other characters. Like particularly, I think a great scene we haven't talked about is when um, Ellen Burstyn drives him over to the pool hall, and she reveals she was Sam's like younger gal that he was with when he talked about his story the whole time. And I think like there's the temptation there between the two of them too. Right, and she's like okay, that's enough. I better go home. Like, she was that close. They were that close to kissing or hooking up. And she's like, no, I can't. And then he gets out of the car and just pounds more bourbon. Like, it's just, it's so crazy. It's so nuts. The levels that people go to to sort of try to prove to others that they're ultimately not what they think they are. And that the extremes that people go to to sort of escape reality, it's, and to see it on such a small scale level, like these kids in this fifties, Texas town, where the biggest thing in the beginning of the movie is how shitty the football team is and how you even see how something like that affects the main character throughout the whole movie. People talking shit about him, even at the end, near the end, when he's standing there on the football field and the guy's like, Oh, we got a good team this year. Not like your year. When was that last year? Last year felt like longer ago. You guys were terrible. And like, oh man, this kid cannot even outlive that he was a shitty high school football player. Just being browbeat throughout his whole life. That's what and he realizes that's gonna be his life from now on. By the adults, too. Not even his other teammates or even the coach. It's everybody in the fucking town. It's it's really sort of sad. It, it, it's interesting also, especially considering like the how Bogdanovich did such a great job here. And there is a sequel to this movie called Texasville that came out in 1990 um, that had Bogdanovich is directing, directed it. And also like most of the major players returned, like Sybil Shepard, Jeff Bridges, Bottoms, uh, Cloris Leachman even is in there. Um, and you can easily see why, you know, some of the things I talked about with like Polly Platt and some of these other people who helped him out um, when that's missing. Um, you don't get nearly as interesting a movie. I didn't even know that was a thing. Most people don't. <laughs> it was. Is through... it, is, have you seen it? I have did. I watched it? it earlier today for the show. Um, it's it's quite forgettable. Every everyone like it's the thirty years later, and it's treated a lot more sort of like a, a midlife crisis movie where there's like sort of a weird dramedy it's trying to be, 
where it has some of these quote-unquote serious moments, but also Jeff Bridges and Civil Shepard, like, return back to each other, and they're like, oh, we had so much fun when we were in high school. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The saddest thing is, Timothy Bottoms at that point, like, like his eye thing, he's gotten to the point where he's got, like, cataracts in there, and he's become, like, mentally off, where he's doing stuff like, he's hanging out in the ruins of the old theater thinking he's still watching a movie. Like, shit like that. Ooh, they, good lord. They really fucking beat him down in that particular bit. Good lord. Yeah. So it's a great movie. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, look, let's put it this way. Because of this movie, I will probably watch that. No, don't. I would not recommend it. I, I think I have to, though. Like, I, I think I have to. And then I'm going to say that you recommended it, and I'm going to put you on blast on social media. There is audio Thomas proof is- of me not recommending it to you. <laughs> Timestamp. Yeah, March 13th, no, 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 2020. Don't be listens to this. <laughs> in the, in the court of recommendations, like, your honor, I have this particular time code. <laughs> you wipe it, you get in, like, a white suit, wipe in your head with a towel constantly. I might be a simple <laughs> southern gentleman. Yeah. Really? Excuse me, I ain't as ornery as an alligator, uh, but I do believe. <laughs> do I do part? I'm a bit parched. Like I get my mint julep off of my my desk here. <laughs> my lovely mother's recipe, God rest her soul. <laughs> Notice how we had to have some kind of fun because this movie, while Not, great, because that's the only way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. But at the same time, it is very much a phenomenal movie, and we'll spin this off into Final Thoughts here, where I will say it's sure. simply one of the ones where, like, when, like I mentioned, I was doing the AFI thing, and I was going through, I always put this one off, it's like, oh, it's in black and white, and there's some cool actors in it, but I don't know, I, I kept kind of putting it off. But then when I finally ended up watching it, I'm like, oh my god, this is one of, like, great ones. And I agree, it was very acclaimed at the time, it was a huge hit, uh, for $1.3 million made $29 million in, like, 70s dollars, so that's a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Huge take. Yes, uh, but you you see, so like it does a movie that especially it kind of feels like one that it, when I was doing that in high school I would not have appreciated that movie nearly as much. It's a movie that like I recommend particularly when you're like in a bit of an older state and you can really appreciate all the nuance that's going on here because there's there's so many different layers with all these different characters and it's interesting just for like seeing some of these people who whether they're older um, but sort of in the middle age state and they would go on to have great careers afterward or younger. And would have even longer great careers. You see so much. Even we didn't talk much about Jeff Bridges, but you see so much of the charm of Jeff Bridges that would keep going from here. It's a very much a sort of declaration point for a lot of these actors, like Civil Shepherd and him, so many other people. It, it feels like it's a great statement of like all these people doing such talented work, but also in this way that feels that like it's showy. It feels very nuanced, subtle, very grounded in a way that, despite like I said, being taking place in the fifties, coming out in the early seventies, it's still so immensely relevant to this day. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree. You know, the thing is, I, I think I'm almost at the perfect age for this movie. I, you know, I'm the end of my 30s at this point. And, you know, I'm probably the age that some of the parents are supposed to be in this movie. And yet I'm still not so far gone from my high school years that I can still remember them and the sort of the awkwardness and the wanting to fit in. I mean, this movie just hit me on so many levels. It is definitely sort of one of the undersung greatest films uh, ever made. I, I think it's deserves sort of mention when people talk about the greatest American movies ever made. This is, it's a, it's a phenomenal movie. I don't think it's a perfect movie, um, but I do think it's absolutely phenomenal. And I think also a great showcase for uh, Cloris Leachman. If you are more familiar with her comedy work in particular. Oh dude, without a doubt. The whole thing is, you know, you're watching it, you being more familiar with her comedy uh, sort of work as I am, I'm almost expecting a bit sometimes. 
And it's like, nah, man, she's fucking full-on gusto dramatic acting, and she kills it. So weird this is only, like, three sort of years before A Young Frankenstein. I know, dude. Just the amount... that, But that just goes to show the caliber of acting she had, you know, and and Hollywood at the time were being a female sort of character actress wasn't necessarily a big deal. I mean, I'd argue it probably still really isn't for the most part. They don't get enough credit as they should, but uh, just the range that she had, it's sort of uh, mind blowing. Yes. And we'll get to another mind blowing film in just a moment. But first here is a promo for an ESO show. You can queue up right after ours. I'm lifelong ensign Charles Kelso. I'm Federation Envoy Keith Johnson. I'm Ferengi Counselor Veronica Dashel. And I'm Andorian Mess Hall Cook R. Allen Siler. And we're the crew of Earth Station Trek. Join us for episode reviews, discussions of themes and characters, and all the news from across the Trekverse. Our logs cover the full gamut of Star Trek. From the groundbreaking original series to the future of the franchise on Paramount Plus. With lots of stops in between. Join our crew aboard Earth Station Trek for your regular podcast escape into the Trekverse. Go bald or go home! Alright, and now we're getting to our second feature, our bad feature, the Oogie Loves in The Big Balloon Adventure. For the first time ever, an interactive movie experience invites you to get out of your seats, go dancing in the aisles, and sing out loud. This is That Movie. One, two, three, four! We are the Oogie Shake goodbye, shake, shake, shake goodbye. Starring Tony Braxton, Morris Leachman. Oh, yeah! Now I'm moving. Christopher Lloyd. You want on the shake, you know what to do. Chaz Palminteri. This summer. Good luck on your big balloon adventure. The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. If my calculations are correct, this is going to be the most amazing. So, Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure uh, came out August 29th, 2012. Most of you are probably completely unaware of what this is. Um, it clearly is a children's film where the purpose of it is based on, like, every sort of bit of marketing they did put out. About, like, hey, we're encouraging people to come here with our, their kids and do some live interactive stuff. Because this story, as it is, is about the Oogie Loves where these three got people in big costumes. Uh, the three characters are Toofy. Zuzi and Gooby, um, and they are these characters who will go on an adventure to find these balloons that have been misplaced for their pillow's birthday, um, and they proceed yep. to go on sort of an Odyssey adventure. It's very much like you know the Odyssey, the Trials of Hercules, sure. uh, Dante's Inferno. It's a lot like those sort of okay. stories. That caliber too, right? right yes, yes, there. of course, true. Right, right up there, and um, they have to basically find these balloons. They're also sentient, and uh, the the basically. <laughs> <laughs> and they encounter a bunch of different celebrity cameos that pop up. And uh, this was infamous. What's the pillow's name? Like Schluffy? Schluffy. The like Schluffy. Yes. Schluffy. Schluffy the pillow. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the, of, of the yeah. Oxford Schluffies. It's like one of those pillows you hide your fleshlight in. <laughs> Looks like it. And the big infamous thing about this movie, the reason I ended up picking it, was the only thing I really knew about this movie for the near decade since it came out in 2012 was uh, it is holds a current box office record. Unlike Avatar, which is now the highest grossing movie of all time again, the Oogie Loves movie uh, still currently holds the record for the the worst opening of all time for a movie that was released on over 2,000 theaters. 
it only made $443,901. Was that in its total run or just opening weekend? That was just opening weekend. Overall, it somehow made $1.1 million, but it cost 20 <laughs> to make. Um, and it's the second lowest grossing movie of all time, only beaten by Delgo, which was an animated movie that uh, previously held that opening weekend record. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, for a movie once again released on 2,000 theaters. That's like the average most big movies are usually put out in when theaters are open and everything. So um, that's all I knew really about it. And apparently it was the brainchild of a producer named Ken Weiselman, who had previously worked on the American version of Teletubbies and also the American translation of Thomas the Tank Engine, which makes a lot of sense <laughs> because sure. it feels definitely like something that was produced by somebody cynically who thinks, oh, this is a way to get people excited and interested in my thing, um, where once again... It's big sort of um, in-theater experiences. Kids at certain points will have butterflies show up so you can dance in the middle of the aisles. <sighs> and then turtles show up to indicate that you need to stop dancing. So it was supposed to be this big interactive experience. Flopped horribly. And uh, that was sort of what I knew about it until seeing it for this show. But Adam, I tasked you to watch this. And usually we don't yeah. communicate when, like whenever we watch the movies. We no, usually kind of wait yeah. until the show to hear each other's thoughts. Except for maybe a small thing about like, oh yeah, I watched it, this will be interesting. Or, oof, that was pretty bad, Thomas. But there was a running Twitter message thread that was going on about this movie. And um, you have a lot of thoughts, so I'm going to leave the floor to you for a while to uh, talk about who you love. This in the Big Balloon Adventure. Go ahead. Let me get ready here. Uh, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. This is so fucking just unbridled garbage that placates to the lowest fucking denominator. It, it, this movie treats kids like they're fucking stupid. Like, and it treats parents of young kids like they're fucking stupid. It, it, it's just, it's so insulting on so many levels and not even, not yet get into the fucking like weird racist shit that happens in this movie. Uh, but I mean, what, uh, what the fuck? What is this movie? It, you know, I was telling you, you know, off show, like the interactive aspect within the first half hour, it happens like 25 times. Seeing this movie, if it would have succeeded with kids in a theater, would have been utter chaos. It would have been the worst experience you could possibly fucking have. Kids up and down running and jumping and going crazy in a fucking movie theater. Like this isn't a live show. This isn't fucking Ninja Turtles on ice or whatever the shit. It, it's just... It's so bad. The, the 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 actor cameos. Oh God, Chaz Palmentary. Uh, what is it? Marvin Milkshake. A Chaz Palmentary as uh, Milky yeah, Marvin. Milky Marvin. Milky Marvin. And he talks in like jazz scat the whole time, like a beep a bop a boop ba. Yeah, dig it. Ooh, my favorite. He runs a milkshake bar with a cow. Like gross. What is the what the fuck is he doing? What is what is this cow contributing to the business? He didn't even think of that. Like, Look, I'm just glad that the cow from Pee Wee's Playhouse got work after a while. She yeah, I guess. Work. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. But then Carrie Ells and Tony Braxton. Like well, Tony Braxton's like whatever, you know. This makes sense to me for Tony Braxton. She's not exactly an accomplished actress. But like Carrie Ells as the bubbly whatever the fuck. Bobbly wobbly, sir. Bobbly wobbly, I am goddamn Christian name. With his horrible Texan accent, it's one of the worst things I've ever fucking seen. And then <sighs> Jamie Presley and Christopher Lloyd as the Sombrero family. They are both doing 
really well, especially her. She's doing a really stereotypical Hispanic accent. Christopher Lloyd doesn't have enough lines to really perfect that terrible No, because he's too busy playing the fucking bongos. And then dancing after a certain point in really bad speed. Of... With a fucking ponytail. In a flying sombrero. Dude, this fucking movie, uh, it broke my brain. Like, it literally did. I, I'm watching this, and I'm I like, well, first of all, give it some context. I put this on earlier in the day with my daughter because she was, you know, like, oh, maybe she, I can watch this, or maybe. Before the Oogie Loves even played their instruments in the beginning of the movie, and we're talking, what, two minutes in? Barely, yes. Barely. My daughter goes, what is this? I don't like this. Like, are they real? Like, what? I, no, I don't want to watch this. And she's five. Maybe slightly older than the target audience, but still, you would figure she might at least yeah. have more interest than you necessarily. It's like, oh, what is this? Oh, this is wacky. They're playing keyboard. No, did not give a fuck. So I put it on later that night, and I mean, I was literally shooting video on my phone of certain parts and sending it to my wife and my brother, and they're both writing me back like, "Are you fucking serious? That's a thing you're watching? What is?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, dude, this is a real thing. Like, this is a real fucking." awful thing my my lovely friend thomas recommended this film to me oh dude and i mean like i told you then fuck you like seriously that, like we always talk about when we get really bad movies this is the worst thing you've seen for the show and most of the time we're like no because it's ultimately forgettable no this is the worst thing i've ever watched <laughs> in the history of my film watching and i've seen awful things not even just for the show but being a, like a you know a horror fan you see some of the worst movies ever or even being a child of the 80s, some of the worst movies ever came out in the 80s and early 90s. This trumps them all. This is atrocious. The thing is, if it was like a pre-existing sort of IP, like a Barney movie or Teletubbies movie, or even like Meet the Wiggles or whatever the fuck that shit is, I get it. Like, okay, it's just I'm not for the audience. This was created for this film to try to build an audience. And it is so dumb and insulting. And the, the fucking, the Wendy window or Windy window, what the fuck? It's so creepy and weird. And there's a vacuum cleaner. Named Jay Edgar. Oh, yeah, sure. And has a weird flirtation with the window. Oh, they want to bang, dude. I know. <laughs> like, and it's so bizarre. And then like at the, oh God, Schluffy the pillow at the end, they're all throwing him gifts. Like, oh, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen. This, like, literally... This made me sort of hate movies for 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, unequivocally, the worst thing I've ever seen. I don't understand. I don't. It, it makes me question everything about screenwriting, about directing, about producing, about everything. Everything. Lionsgate fucking released this thing. What in the fuck? In over what, 2,000 theaters. What in, what in the fuck? What in the fuck? What what in the fuck? This had a wider release than Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> yeah, true. This exists. This is something that is around forever. That hopefully, hopefully, given its reputation and what it's already done, will just be lost to time. Except by dumb podcasters that talk about it on their shows uh, like us. And, and except, or except by people who are listeners of our show who are fucking like, gluttons for punishment who want to follow along and watch the movies we watch i am so sorry i i apologizing for thomas 
if you guys watch this, yo, this is all Thomas Mariani's fault. <laughs> this is not. I'll accept blame on some bullshit I've picked, but this is fucking terrible. Like, this is torture. Oh, no, yeah, the, like, I, I will accept full blame because I picked this because I was very curious cause yeah. to, to watch it. The only clips I'd really seen were the stuff with the Milkshake Marvin, which, as much as I do agree, there's a sadness to seeing Chaz Palminteri do what he's doing. That is where I would argue the movie's at least at its weird, surreal peak of, like, how, what is happening? Why is this happening? Yeah. What, what yeah. the fuck is happening? Yeah, I could see Donald Trump watching this movie. When he was in the presence, he's like, oh, this is going to be a great way to torture people. <laughs> like, this is torture. This is terrible. Like, show this movie on big screens to, like, bandits that have held an apartment complex hostage. They'll run the fuck out. Instead of doing noise pollution, show them this movie. Anybody will submit to you. This is awful. <laughs> God, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not an arsonist. I had to burn my building down. This movie. <laughs> like, this is the worst shit I've ever seen. I think it, it's really interesting also just because given the origin of it and how literally the, the producer I mentioned, the, this war criminal of um, the Ken Vizelman, um, was just like, oh, you know what? I was inspired by going to a screening of a Tyler Perry movie, Medea Goes to Jail, and seeing everyone interact oh, in the audience. So great origin point of like well, horrible racism. thank you, Tyler Perry, again, <laughs> fucking but, but here's the thing. But, like, but th- that's an example where we, we were talking about this like with the – any other, like, property, like, even a Medea movie. Like, I've seen a few of those Medea movies. They're obviously not my thing. But it has a built-in audience because Tyler Perry worked hard to make that character as big as she ultimately has become. Yes. As a character, like, worked, like, the, you know, the, the plays and all that, despite it not really being something I'm a fan of. It's just like, oh, I can respect the hustle, necessarily. But it has to... an audience. And I know, right. And I do know people who genuinely think that shit is hilarious. Right. Like, I know people who think the Medea movies are fucking funny. And I don't... Right, they're not for me, but I'm not going to besmirch someone for liking them. This movie? Look, I I would never, like, make fun of somebody or be mean to someone for liking something. Like, whatever you like, you like. However, (laughs) if I were to meet somebody, and it could be my fucking mother... If she looked me in the eyes and said, we watched the Oogly Loves movie. I thought it was pretty cute. I'd be like, fuck you. I'm divorcing you as a parent. Like at 38 years old. I'm emancipating myself at 30. I emancipate myself. I would start the court process (laughs) at my age. I could just not call her again. But that's how far I would take it. It's that bad. This is so bad. And it's not even sincere at all. It's incredibly cynical because of what we talked about. We're just like, oh, this is a very cheap attempt to build a franchise out of just, like, this audacity. We're just like, oh, we're going to spend $20 million and get this out there in theaters. We're like, I remember when I was a kid. And I've seen other kids shows where, like, they do similar things like this. We're just like, oh, hey, kids interact or do this, like, repetition, all this other shit. But, and at least, like, with those other things, I can respect that they did that for as long as they did over a TV show. And then some of them tried to do a movie like Thomas Tank Engine even did that. I saw that movie in a theater. Not a lot of kids did. It was a big bomb. Because it's like, that, this is something inherently that would work better at home for children. And even then, at the same time, it's also completely insulting them. In a way where, like, I'm sure, maybe not at the target audience, like a three-year-old or whatever, but if I was, like, around your daughter's age, just like, you're insulting my intelligence. I could be watching, like, some other show. My daughter's five years old. I've watched, you know, Daniel Tiger and all this horrible bullshit to where they teach them morals and have them interact and sing with them. Like, do you know which one the color blue is? <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
You're like, oh, okay, well, great. By the way, I always ace those tests. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Daniel Tiger. You can't beat me. <laughs> you ain't got me, son of a bitch. But uh, <laughs> dangerous predator, my ass. Um, I, uh, the most dangerous game is man, motherfucker. Right, fuck you. <laughs> I got you, Trump, Daniel Tiger. Little bullshit-ass motherfucker. Take off your red jumper. This is like, like, I, like you said, and I said, this is just pure bullshit, unadulterated, insulting the intelligence of anybody who watches it. I, I got to say, like, even a three-year-old, like, I'm even thinking back to when my kid was three, I think she'd get bored of this after halfway through. The audacity to also make it, like, 87 minutes long, where, like, a kid would immediately lose interest. Like, this is something that should be, oh. at best, 20-minute episodes broken up. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you feel every 87 minutes of this fucking thing. It feels like it's three hours long. Right. I mean, it's so long. I mean, to the point where I'm pausing it, and I'm like, okay, how much longer? 21 minutes in? Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. I, I mean, it was to the point where I was counting the seconds. I'm like, oh, God, please end. Please end. Please end. Please end. It was so bad. I, I, I don't, like, I don't drink during the week. Is it like a pure moral thing? Because I got to work the next day and everything. I was doing shots of tequila by the end of this. I wasn't going that far, but I was definitely having a few beers for sure. Oh no! I, I, well, well, I'm taking a few on top of a few beers. <laughs> like I was drinking beers and doing shots by the end just to dull the pain. Yeah, because I think, like I said, the sort of when I was texting you initially about, it, I was just like, isn't this weird and surreal? I would say that wears off not too long after the Milky Marvin thing, and we haven't even talked about it's... Cloris Leachman is the first celebrity they encounter, and it's. The saddest, weirdest thing, who at this point was about um, 86 years old, and he introduced her as this uh, character, the Dottie Rounder, who is this older woman who lives in a treehouse, who has polka dots all over her, not just her outfit, but her face and everything, and she talks about like, oh, I love circles, and I love dancing around, and it feels like she's made up in this way that makes her look like Betty Davis and whatever happened to Baby Jane. It's incredibly upsetting. <laughs> Mixed with, like, the real-life Annabelle, the ra horror, the fucking haunted Raggedy Ann doll. Yes. It's fucking terrifying. And, and it's so bad. You feel so bad for her, because, like, she tries to do the dance, and she can barely move. Yeah, apparently she was very winded by the end of actually doing it, which is, you can tell, and it's really sad, just seeing her at this state, where she's done plenty of movies that have used her poorly in sort of a way of this, like, ageism kind of thing, where it's like, oh, she's old, and she has a joke, or we're gonna, like, throw her around, or she can have sex with somebody. She's old, right. She did that a lot, and, you know, like we said, she's very game for this, but it, it's sort of a thing where, like, you can tell that they're kind of, like, they only have so long with any of these celebrities. There's so many shots where just, like, the celebrities by themselves with, like, maybe only one of the costume characters, and then shots behind where it's clearly a double. So much, because clearly yeah. they had these celebrities for a day to do oh, whatever yeah. shit. And, hours and it feels like they're really rushing her to do this dance. One of many, we have mentioned this is a musical with zero um, percent good songs in it. <laughs> yeah, there, no, there's nothing good about this. No, no, none of these songs are good. And um, but it's it's just really like a weird, like I said, very surreal, sad note to start with. Then the milkshake Marvin thing happens. And I think that's kind of it's not good at all. But I think it's at least the most weird, like colorful, bizarre thing. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And Jazz Palminteri is really, like, is both really into it for, like, certain lines and then clearly half-assing, especially when his dances, where he's, like, waving his oh. hands. Oh. 
just does not give a fuck. Like the the reading the lines, he's good good with, but the uh, being active, he's like, no, I don't want to do this. Just, especially like the line I keep saying, but ooh, my favorite. It's just like this weird thing. Not to mention also the weird stuff with there's a goldfish character we haven't mentioned who they bring along for the ride, who has all these like terrible oh. like bits. Especially like he's in this fish tank, and they don't even have the audacity to put a filter to make it look like he's in water. It's just a very clear plastic thing. One of the main yeah, it looks, like, it looks like Jeff Garland. <laughs> the goldfish looks like Jeff Garland. Well, especially when he does he when he wins the milkshake like. competition, he's just like, "Oh, yeah. I need some fish to boost mold." It's so dumb. <laughs> it's so stupid. And all of like the weird, like we even mentioned, like the Oogie Loves constantly encounter animals who are all these really badly like moved around stuffed animal puppets. They're like it's just like you just taxidermied some animals. I don't know why you're. T- this is like really upsetting. <laughs> After like the milkshake Marvin stuff, you get to like the Tony Braxton thing, which I would say any child would immediately be bored by. Like, I was bored by it. It's just like, oh, we gotta give down from your, your fucking, um, your airplane, the, the balloon. Oh, but we have to do a song about me coughing and sneezing that's like a weird slow ballad? Like, what the fuck is this? And kids don't know who the fuck Tony Braxton is. Like, why are we having Tony Braxton? But they all what know, to be fair, like... all kids are real big fans of our Chaz Palm and Terry roles. Yep. Like, I get yep. that. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. He's he's right there with any Disney Channel originals. Zendaya, Chaz Palm and Terry, same level. You're right. Is that, is that the detective from Usual Suspects? <laughs> <laughs> I love a blog's tale, Daddy. Love that movie. I love it. <laughs> Is that the guy from Jade? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, like in theory, it's just like all oh, these celebrities are here to like entertain any of the adults. Like, oh, it's Chaz Palminteri or like Tony Braxton. Most adults who probably wouldn't know who either of them are, by the way, especially Chaz Palminteri. Like, I kind of know that guy. It's the guy that looks familiar. Yeah. Oh, that guy. He's from. Uh... The Sopranos, I think, one of those. <laughs> right, fucking... right. And then, like, the, the Carrie Elwes one is, like, it's unhinged. But weirdly, he's doing a better American accent than any of his actual American accents in, like, the Saw movies. Oh, I take, uh, oh, yeah, I was going to say, I'll take this accent over Saw any day. <laughs> oh, God, imagine just like, I just woke up here in this bathroom. There's a body in the middle of the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like his bum bum is bubbling. Woo! <laughs> it's so dumb. I completely agree with you about, like, the Christopher Lloyd, Jimmy Presley thing. Oh. It feels so weird that they're playing, like, these ostensibly Mexican characters is what they're supposed to be. Where it's just like, you couldn't get, like, an actual Mexican actor, an actress to do that. You couldn't? You had to get these two? Like, nobody. Nobody. Selma Hayek. What was Selma Hayek doing in 2012? Like, I, honestly. To be, she was probably doing, like, a grown-ups movie, but also she's just like, no, guys. Than like a Jamie Presley and Christopher Lloyd, who, as far as I can tell, don't have any sort of Mexican ancestry. I don't know. Maybe they're like one fifteenth. <laughs> it's like Johnny Depp and the Lone Ranger, just like, oh, I have a bit of this blood in me. And they're in a flying sombrero. Like, come on, bro. Come on. It, it'd only been worse if they were like throwing empanadas down which is, and stuff like that. It's also like, so weird that like the sombrero. The problem is that like, oh, they have to dance in order to speed it up to get close to the windmill where the balloon is. But, like, they just stop after a certain point, just like, well, we can't go higher in our sombrero fucking flying saucer. Jimmy Presley's doing, like, the tango. Like a sexy dance for these little children characters. And Kiss is a fish. Like, she's, and she was very excited about kissing that fish. She wanted to fuck that fish. She's into that fish, bro. Oh, God. <laughs> and the weird thing is, like, after that last celebrity, you would figure that would just be the end of the movie. But there's a solid, like, 20 minutes after that that feels like 80 or so, it feels like another movie attached. I was just like, oh, we gotta go back. And we haven't mentioned much about these quote-unquote main characters. And it's because, like, they don't have any real personality. 
Yeah, one's a nerd. Right. One's a girl that talks to animals. And the other one's like a punk rocker who can is he the one that could climb everything? Yes, and also his pants fall down all the time because he doesn't want to wear a belt. Oh, so funny. Goofy Toofy, pick up oh. your pants. They make you say that 35 times if you follow the instructions. Mm-hmm. So perfect. Because, like, when I was a kid and I, like, watched some of these shows, I mean, like, looking back on them, like, even when I was too old for, like, Teletubbies when it came up, I had a younger sister who loved that shit. And I at least got it at that time. Like, why a little kid would like it. It's like, okay, it makes sense. Like, they're colorful characters. The thing is, with Teletubbies, you don't even attempt to really make them big, distinctive characters. They're kind of just part of a weird pod commune or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, it's, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's it's weird, crazy shit. But yeah, it's bright and colorful. And there's seasons of shows. You know, like, even, like, Bananas in Pajamas. Oh, God. That was a thing. Right, yeah. I saw some of that when I was a little kid. It. Yeah, it was successful because it was, like, silly and it's in 20-minute bursts. And they're Bananas in Pajamas. It's perfect. Yeah. That sells it immediately. It kind of rhymes. That's a great joke. The Another thing this person came from with Thomas the Tank Engine, like, I uh, was attached to Thomas as a little kid. As you can clearly tell, it's because I am a locomotive. Um, I transport goods and everything. It has nothing to do with the name. You definitely steamroll everybody. <laughs> hey, hey, that's true. And I also <laughs> block you in traffic so you can't get to work on time. You let random dudes paint your body. <laughs> and I let hobos get on the, tra- on the train and sing Jimmy Crack Corn. The point is, like, with Thomas as a character, like, I could at least attach, like, oh, Thomas is, like, a very plain Paddington kind of character where, like, he's blue sure. and he's bright, he smiles, and he wants to do the best for everybody. But honestly, you have to admit, it probably also helped that he had your name. True. Like, your first name, that also helps that you could identify in even of the slightest way. This... What kid likes to cl- can climb everything? And sorry to any of you named Goofy Toofy out there. Your God-given Christian name. Yeah, I apologize. I am sorry if there is one of you out there. <laughs> Chance out you're not listening to this. Second of all, you should really be mad at your parents. <laughs> um, you should get the emancipation documents from Adam. He'll tell you how to do it. And plus, you know, the other thing when you bring up, Carrie L is, they go inside his giant tractor trailer, which apparently he, he ships bubbles. Is that correct? That he's he loves bubbles and he sells his bubbles. His tractor trailer is a barn on the inside. Right. It's just a regular barn. Also, by the way, a great lesson to teach to kids. We're just like, oh, hey, we need help with something stranger. Why don't you get in my truck? Strange hillbilly trucker. Yeah, go on back there. You just go find a lot of excitement in there. Because that's the thing. Is like even like with some of these other shows we talk about, there's some small educational value that's not like the most nuanced thing. But at least there's some basic lesson you can take away from that, and that's fine. That's that's that like works for a children's program as opposed to yes. this is like this will like not only not teach your kids any lesson, it will rot away any other lessons they have. It's gonna put them in danger. It's gonna put them in danger. Yes. Hey, you're missing your balloon. Go see the Italian guy at the milkshake stand. Maybe he can help you. <laughs> go talk to that strange cow that has your balloon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to ask a trucker at a rest stop. If you could party in his trailer and dance for him. Follow rules that are given to you by llamas with signs about not getting on the grass. Yeah, that's not good. Walk through this field and have two people doing awful Hispanic accents ask you to go with them and they're flying sombrero. Yeah, fuck it. Might have a good time. Always trust strangers. That's the lesson of the film for children. Always trust strangers. Especially if one of them played Dr. Emmett Brown. The worst you ever made. <laughs> now, Adam, you, you say that for sure. And to me... Thinking about that, like, is this the worst movie we've ever covered on the show? Because we've covered some doozies. I would have to definitely say yes. Yes. 
I mean, without a doubt, right? Like, without a doubt. I mean, the only the only other ones that has any competition, we've said it many times before, is the Wired John Belushi movie. Sure. But, Wired, Hood of Horror. Right. You know, all those are really bad, but this is, like, number one with a fucking bullet. It's so bad. And the thing is, it's not, it's not that it's even forgettable. I'll never forget this movie. No, never. Like, I might forget the title or things like that, because the title is so preposterous and ridiculous. But... I will never forget this movie. It has been seared into the back of my eyeballs. Like, I think I have cataracts now because of this movie. It's so bad. It did lasting damage. Lasting, lasting damage. I'll never be in a meaningful relationship again because of this movie. <laughs> Anytime I'm about the climax, I'm going to think of Carrie Ells dancing like a cowboy. And I'm just going to be like, so wrong, I got to go. <laughs> You'll walk just like Carrie Elvis does bowling. Yep. Yep, exactly. It's just it, this. This is just so fucking just stupid. It, it, that's the thing. It's stupid. It's not even that it's a bad movie because it is a bad movie. It's a terrible movie, but it's stupid. It talks down to any audience that it might have garnered. Usually, with like people who say general things about movies, like I encounter every day, it doesn't like really affect me because like whatever, fine, that's your opinion. But the idea of like, well, it's for kids. Like, really, just defends yep. me, even though I'm not a parent. That's a defense mechanism. Shitty movies. Oh, well, it's not for you. It's for kids. Dude, when I was a kid, I had Sesame Street, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse, shit like that. And while they are wacky and frenetic and kinetic and nuts, there was always some kind of lesson, some kind of anything to make it relatable to children and their parents. And, you know, you could take something from the show and sort of implement it in your kid's life and be like, see, they told you don't talk to strangers. It's not okay to hit people. It's not okay to do any of that. This does nothing. This does absolutely nothing. There is no lesson to be learned here. There is absolutely nothing. It treats your kids like they're fucking caged monkeys that you took to the theater, and here you go, let them run loose for a little while. Right, because especially like when you say something like, oh, it's just for kids, like that's so incredibly insulting to your child, which is like, oh, do you only feed your child garbage? Do you not want your child to like eat well? In the same way of like, do you want your kid to like watch media rotting bullshit? that just, like, won't either yeah. teach them anything or at least give them some kind of creative energy. Like, Pee-wee's didn't always have lessons, but it had, like, a fun, creative energy that, like, like yeah, that could inspire was... a child to some degree. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It was silly, dude. There was cool, like, the visuals were cool. The, even the set design was cool. There's none of that in this at all. There's nothing here to sort of glom onto. To where, like, well, at least this looked good, or at least this there was a good idea behind this. Or like I said, I keep going back to, well, at least they tried to teach some kind of lesson. Or, or even what I love about Pee-wee's Bush, looking back on it, it's like, oh, they were, like, very willingly accepting of just, like, people of different cultures and races just being people in yeah. Pee-wee's neighborhood. Like, fucking Cowboy yeah. Curtis, which is like, oh, it's a cowboy yeah. with a jerry curl. He's my friend. Great. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, man. I mean, come on. Right. You know, this is just, this is bottom-of-the-barrel bullshit. And like I said, I have a five-year-old. I've seen, you know, Caillou and Daniel Tiger and... Blues Clues and all that shit. I've seen it ad nauseum. I would take any of that in a fucking marathon or have to watch this for 80 more minutes. I do a three-day marathon of Blues Clues over watching this again. I think you've exhausted as much as you can about who you love yourself, Adam, unless you have anything possible to add as a final thought. No, this is, like I said, this is absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen. It, it treats its audience like they're dumb and that they all they need is, you know, songs and dances in order to be entertaining and the songs and dances aren't even well done they're not even choreographed they're not even catchy 
Um, so it fails on literally every level it might be trying to achieve. It's insulting for the viewer. It's insulting to the character actors who show up. It's it's ultimately just a big 80-minute insult and a fuck you to movie-going audiences. Uh, as a cinema fan, uh, I find this completely offensive and reprehensible. Also, as a father, as a human, as a being on Earth in the universe. I mean, as a father, as a human, as just conscious life. This is the worst. I mean, you could show this to a fucking bearded dragon and it'd be upset. Like, this is just the worst shit ever. We won't share any of our magical secrets with you humans anymore after this. <laughs> right. No, why did I show what Oogie Loves was the first thing why I discovered a dragon. The gateway is closed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so dumb. Alien life would come down and see this and be like, oh, this species isn't worth saving. Ironically, they look like Oogie Loves, which is the big twist. Yeah. But at least, Adam, you can say... Any bad movie we do in the future at least has the bottom basement level expectation of, well, at least it wasn't an Oogie Loves. From now on, you have a bottom. I hope. I really hope. I hope we never come close to this again. I really do. I, I, I think, yes, this is the absolute, probably possible worst example I'm hoping that we ever come across. I really am. Like, Country Bears was right up for there for me. That almost broke me mentally, too. But this one actually did. So yeah, I hope we never come close to this again. Yeah, um, all I'll really add is if you really want to test the theory of like, oh, hey, it doesn't matter. I can, like, kids can watch anything, you know, meant for them. It's fine. Like, it's just for kids. That doesn't matter. If you really want to test that theory, I w that's the only person I would ever recommend to watch this just to really show a bottom basement level. Like, this is what it could be. This is what your child could be exposed to. This is the kind of thing that would actively insult any kind of development on an emotional level, on an intellectual level, on just a basic like social level, anything like that. If you're really going to expose your child to this, if you were to watch it, you would realize that's not a thing, and you should actually respect what your child consumes as media. I completely agree. That is the end of our uh, double feature, finally, that uh, <laughs> we're discussing. Uh, but we still got some things to do, including we'll be doing some uh, picking for next week's episode at the end of this one, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we have some feedback to read, because every Monday at DEDVPod, on both Twitter and Facebook, we ask you all about, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to every topic we're doing? And so we asked uh, all of you out there some questions, including James Rodriguez, uh, our buddy, who says, uh, for Cloris Leachman's filmography, the best films Cloris Leachman appeared in were the sob-inducing The Iron Giant, the laugh riot that is Young Frankenstein, uh, with her masterful turn as Frau Blucher, horse windy noise. Um, and I also have a soft spot for Sky High, but Scary Movie 4 and The Wedding Ringer are dire. And then another friend of the show, Christian Alvarez, says Cloris Leachman was a comedic genius and will be sorely missed. Uh, whether she was a main cast member or a small role, she was always a stellar talent. Her greatest roles outside of her fantastic television career include her cameo in Butch Casting the Sundance Kid, The Last Picture Show, The Muppet Movie, History of the World Part 1, and one of my favorite movies of all time, Young Frankenstein. Her worst roles aren't due to a lack of talent, but overall quality of the project. Those roles include The Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure, Scary Movie 4, Ugh. Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, and role as Old Lady the 20 for Adam Sandler in The Longest Yard Remake. Yep. Uh, you know, another one that... I just recently rewatched for the first time since it came out that you watch her in it and you're like, oh no, but not even her, like Donald Sutherland is Beer Fest. Yes, Beer Fest, the yeah. Broken Lizard production. Not their worst one they put out, I don't think. Uh, that's probably still Slam and Salmon. 
no, you know, she was always good, man. She was always good. Even in Beer Fest, even in, you know, Longest Yard and everything, she's 100% in. It's just, it's a shame those were the type of roles she was getting at the end of her career. But fuck, man, she was still good. You could tell, like, people wanted her in their movies because they love her. And I always heard about her just being the nicest person and super easygoing and easy to work with. So, you know, yeah, she did some shit throughout her career but i don't think there's one actor you can really mention who's had nothing but a stellar career and the fact of the matter that she went as long as she did and she was still in high profile movies you know says a lot about her as a person yeah and even in like certain movies where i think she's very good even though i'm not a huge fan of the project like a spanglish has so many issues i'm not a fan of that movie but i think she really stands out as the grandmother character that was always going to be one of my alternate choices but on hindsight i i thought a little bit more about him like yeah i fucking hate that movie but she was great in it it's like her and adam sandler but everything else about the movie is so fun oh, it yeah, is such terrible. a white people problems movie that's so dumb of the ones mentioned for bad i would definitely scary movie four is like the most offensive one to me because in that that's the one where she um plays sort of a parody of the, the one right but she's in specifically the grudge parody where anna ferris is like taking care of her as like the sort of catatonic woman and the oh, whole yeah. joke is just elder abuse just like, oh, she gets thrown around, and there's a whole sequence where a sponge bath, instead of using, like, the water thing Anna Ferris uses, like, her, god, what is it, the piss? Bed well, the, well, bedpan. She uses her bedpan, yeah. And it's, like, yeah. so fucking, like, this is a disgrace to, like, anybody yeah. watching this. And even, I like, agree. there are even some movies where, like, they're not necessarily terrible, but, like, I rewatched High Anxiety, the Mel Brooks uh, Hitchcock parody. Not nearly as good as I remembered it being kind of like a that's my it's kind of my least favorite mel brooks movie i think i uh, i don't know i mean there's still like life stinks it's one of my least favorites <laughs> yeah oh that's true oh that's true but at the same time she really like her and harvey corman are the funny thing about that movie like anytime yeah. they show up as the villains particularly there's that whole bit where like they're parodying the shot underneath like the glass table when they're plotting and the, Harvey Corman and her, like, keep putting, like, stuff on the table, and it blocks the camera, so it keeps, like, trying to move over and get a good shot of them. And there's only a point where she's like, oh, you need to finish your strudel, and she has a giant pan that she slams on the glass table. <laughs> it's so funny, and she's like, oh my god, she really, especially in a movie that really underutilizes a lot of its female talent particularly, it's like the only Mel Brooks movie where Madeline Kahn isn't allowed to be funny. She's just, like, a love interest character, and it's so insulting now, Madeline Kahn. Um, like she like stands out so well, sort of like Nurse Ratchet kind of parody character. She's very very fun in it. Yeah, I agree. Again, like I said, the fact that she was still sort of in high demand to pop up in these little character roles up to the very end of her career says more than two schmucks on a podcast can possibly say about her. She was just she was awesome. She was so funny and so charming right up until the end. And you know, I I'm so glad that I was not only able to watch last picture show now to see sort of her dramatic performance, but just to grow up with her making me laugh. And you know, for that, you know, it's, it's something special. Are there any sort of good ones you would want to smile? I mean, like I said, you know, before young Frankenstein to me is, it's sort of the crowning achievement for me. Uh, but she, she showed up at American gods, the star show. Yes. She was incredible on that show. She's so fucking good in it, dude. That's a later thing. You know, the, the woman has, like i think like 280 some odd credits yeah still has a couple that have been released yet that'll come out posthumously that's what i'm saying dude i mean and she was just so good and everything and then she'd show up in shitty like horror movies like oh it's the crocodile movie that bill pullman was in late 
Lake Placid. She well, was no, Lake she was Placid. in Lake Placid too. Lake Placid. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She would right. show up in the in those movies and sequels, and she was always the shining light of those sequels. She's done so much voice work. I mean, she was Miss Tensage in your favorite fucking movie of all time, The Iron Giant. Right. I mean, or, or of course, uh, I think not. No one really remembers this, but I think it's a really fun bit. She's the old lady on the bus that keeps showing up in uh, Beavis and Butthead to America. Yes. Which is so fucking funny. <laughs> so, there's so many slots. Slots. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, this old lady's cool as hell. <laughs> um, or even just to spotlight a very early one, a movie we've nearly done for the show several times and we should definitely do it at some point, uh, Kiss Me Deadly. She's part of the inciting incident of that movie. She shows up at the very beginning yes. and sort of kicks off the mystery that happens from there. Um, she, she's like such a great character who can be utilized, even with like the sort of like older person roles. I think a better example of her doing that is like in Bad Santa as the grandma. Yes, as the grandmother. Right. You want to make you some sandwiches? Some sandwiches. <laughs> she also had sometimes just great actors to bounce off that worked. Like, even in Bad Sandy. Like, I'll fix some sandwiches. What is it with you and the fucking sandwiches? I don't want all sandwiches. <laughs> She'd light up every every scene she was in. She was, she was just fantastic. That's why it was really hard for me to not... I didn't want to pick one of the, like, the typical Mel, Mel Brooks roles or something like this, even though Young Frankenstein... Uh, was a shoe in for my alternate because I realized how much I hated Spanglish, like right up until announcing my picks. But I, did, I didn't want to do that. That's why I was really sort of stoked on doing Last Picture Show because, like, oh, she's completely dramatic in this. And I've heard, obviously, she won the Oscar for it. But that just goes to show, like, what a range she had and, and just how good she really, truly was. I mean, it's it's a loss for sure. I'm just glad that it wasn't an uh, early loss. Like, she lived a, a full life. Yes, and she will be missed. Absolutely. Thank you for that feedback, everybody. We also want to thank some other people like Chris Oliver, who does the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, thanks to our loyal Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to vote in polls to pick certain topics or even movies we do for the show. And uh, also you get bonus podcast stuff. Like, uh, we'll just say, near the end of the month, you'll get our March Badness uh, movie villains podcast. It'll be very interesting once we record that later on. And uh, also... It's gonna be long. It's gonna be long. It'll be long, that's true, yes. And uh, we'll be launching up a new show called On the Edge of Relevance, where we'll be covering big streaming titles right out the gate, not too long after they come out. And uh, you'll be able to hear our thoughts on stuff like uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, and uh, maybe also a certain extended edition of a big superhero movie that came out a few years ago. Yep, a six-hour long version of it. Four hours long. Is it four hours and six parts? It's four hours and six parts, yes. I know, it's, it's very confusing. It'll probably feel like six parts. Who knows? Who knows? We'll find out. But um, for... Uh, more of our antics, you can uh, follow us over on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBPod, where we post the questionnaires and stuff every Monday. You can also uh, email us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Uh, also, you can uh, buy merchandise with our logo on it over at the ESOT Public Store, like a, a mug or a t-shirt or any other things. We encourage you to do what, Adam? Buy our merch! Buy our merch! The John Lovitz of the podcast, great. Never old. Never. <laughs> Never will get old. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, for more uh, great content just individually, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing at uh, places like MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and even over at sites like 
Film Cred, I recently put out a review of In Search of Darkness Part 2, the big old 80s horror documentary, has returned. And I did a review about it over there at uh, it's film-cred.com. And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. Uh, mostly just sharing lately pictures of hot sauce that I've acquired or of my dogs or whatever, you know, silly stuff. None of it's too poignant. Uh, I'm always down for a conversation. I'm always down to share your stuff and, and maybe help you get more visibility. I just hope you do the same for me and our show. Uh, and, you know, one uh, sort of uh, lasting impression and sort of thorough uh, line of our show tonight is, uh, a legacy someone could leave and, and how important it is to sort of be there for everybody and, and just be a consummate professional and a good person. And, you know, the thing is, you might have some missteps in your life or in your career or whatever it is, but the important thing is always just be available to everyone as much as you can without taking away from yourself. Uh, just be nice to each other. Make the world a little bit better for everyone you come across, including yourself. I think that's very, very important, especially nowadays. Wow, Adam, just a really great lesson. More educational than the entire Oogie Loves movie. I'll tell you, that was hard to do because of the Oogie Loves movie. I'll tell you. I'm like, man, am I going to have anything for this one? Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> Fucking Oogie Loves. Yes, yes. And uh, for more of our less Oogie Loves-focused content, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening to ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows uh, that are out there on the platform? And uh, you can also dig into our archives over on our Podbean main feed for just all of the stuff that we did even before ESO. And nothing else, if you can't buy the merch, if you can't subscribe to the Patreon, the absolute free way to help us out is just to rate, review, or share the show around to give us a bit more visibility out there. Yeah, it's that easy, and we, it really means the world to us. Yes, and now, Adam, it's time to do our picking for next week. And um, our topic, which we're kind of doing as a tie-in to, speaking of Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, we asked all of our patrons over at the Patreon to vote between two sort of topics that tied into that, where there were creature features, uh, which would be basically like any movies about otherworldly creatures uh, that attack us, but they ended up going with the other topic choice that they voted on, which was uh, when animals attack. Yes. Yes, and a lot harder for me this round to pick two. I gotta be honest. Honestly, same thing for me, yeah. 9,000 snake movies. <laughs> There's a lot of snake movies. So. I also tried to avoid aquatic ones because way back in the day we did like a sea creature double feature kind of thing. Yeah. Sort of surfaced around that topic, but still, it's been a while, it doesn't matter. I have two good choices for that topic. You have two bad. I have a sign number between one and ten for both those choices. You've done the same. So uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, pick randomly. So for my two good choices, I have a number between one and ten. Oh. Uh, let's go number three. All right. You know, at number five, I have one that's kind of an out-of-the-box choice. There are animals in here, and they do attack people. It's not the main focus of the story, though. But I've wanted to cover this movie for a while. I can't wait to now. It is... The Dario Argento classic phenomena. Wow. I would have never, ever thought that that would be your choice. That's, that's pretty awesome. But argue, it does fit, right? You would argue that fits. Oh, no, it definitely does. It definitely yes, does. I, I just, I would have never thought of that. Wow. Okay. And your other? 
at uh, number nine, I had a movie I haven't seen, but I was curious about just because it's the only film directed by a legendary title designer. I had Phase Four, which had Killer Ants in it, apparently. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah, you went real out of the box on this one. I was not expecting any of it. Wow, okay. I mean, all the all the things were just like, I could do the birds or Jaws, and like I didn't want to quite do those. Yeah, right. That, that was exactly the problem I had. But yeah, I get it. Well, oh boy. speaking okay. of which, I'm very curious for your two bads. So I'll go on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm going to do number eight. All right. At number 10, I have the, I'd argue, Tim Curry starring Michael Crichton scripted Congo. Hooray! I love Congo genuinely. <laughs> I don't, so... I can't wait <laughs> It's so crazy. And at number one, I had Anaconda Offspring, which stars David Hasselhoff as a mercenary fighting Anacondas. And one of my favorite things ever is he tells everyone, Would you, if you see it, you shoot, but only aim for the head. Why? <laughs> you could kill it. Oh, one of the best lines, too. If this thing gets pregnant, this country will be overrun with snakes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's very interesting. So we technically, it's a bit of a monkey thing between our two movies, but also my movie yeah. has some insect attacks. So it works. Yeah. Yeah. It works. I'm down. Bucket in work. You know, Kong. Monkeys. Of course. Yes, right. All of right. course. So yeah, it's an unofficial monkeys episode, everybody. So mm-hmm. um, we'll definitely be talking about all that next time. But until then, everybody, uh, it's time for you to sit down back in your seats because the turtles are on the screen. Oh, man. This might be it for me. <laughs> like forever. Is this the end of Double Edge, Double Bill and Millhouse? Possibly. Good night, everybody. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.